Well, we're in Psalm 105, and Jonathan Edwards, who was the third president of Princeton College and a foremost philosopher and Puritan, said, when a person believes that the almighty and everywhere present power of God upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them that herbs and grass rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Yes, all things come not by chance, but by the fatherly hand of the Lord. When a person believes and cherishes that truth, they have the key to a God-entranced worldview. And so to have a God-entranced worldview means to be filled with wonder and delight by God's presence in this world so that all of your attention is held by him. This morning we're going to see that every aspect of this historical narrative in Psalm 105 is written to assure your trust in a God-entranced worldview. And even in the opening command of Psalm 105, the psalmist suggests that we should praise God because we realize in the details of the history that the psalmist is describing for us that all things are directed by a God of infinite intelligence and wisdom who not only knows the end from the beginning in all circumstances, but who is incapable of choosing an inappropriate means to bring about everything that we experience. This biblical God-entranced worldview describes the God of infinite wisdom presiding over everything that is happening. That to God, nothing is uncertain or contingent upon something else. And that whatever may be the result, nothing can happen by chance. But that everything is being ordered by one who cannot err. And when the psalmist here notes the times that individuals find themselves afflicted and in distress over their circumstances, he shows us that all of their difficulties have been appointed. And they've been appointed by one who has the power to not only relieve those of the circumstances they're in, but also has the power to appoint the afflictions at the proper time. And so this is the challenge before us this morning. Is your faith in the God-entranced worldview that the psalmist is describing such that it leads you to give thanks to the Lord. To call upon his name and to make known his deeds among the people. Will that be the result of you understanding the way God has dealt with the history of Israel? So we're going to have to be selective this morning in choosing which details we will focus on because the psalmist nutshells God's protection and provision here for Israel for a period of 430 years. And I don't suppose you're ready to stay for lunch. 
Not this Sunday, anyway. So the psalmist begins detailing that history in verses 7 to 11 by establishing the foundation that God will forever be faithful to us because he promised to be faithful to Abraham. And he begins in verse 7 to say, He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. God always remembers the imposition of the obligation he placed on himself in his relationship to Abraham. The covenant is shorthand for, this is my promise to save you. So the covenant is the preservative factor in the life of Israel. When God says, I will establish my covenant, he means I will set my covenant in operation so that nothing will affect it in any way that could ultimately thwart it. And then as we consider the historical record in Psalm 105, that means that then God will not allow lies or bad decisions or innocent actions made in ignorance or, his hum or the human will to thwart his covenant. It means he will not allow our deceitfulness, our mistakes, our enemies, our circumstances, our neglect of him, our moral failures, or our momentary lapses in obedience to thwart what he has promised to do for us. Having a God-entranced worldview means that God in his covenant will allow nothing to interfere with the fulfillment of the three promises that he made to Abraham. To provide a seed, capital S, as we discover in Galatians, that would come through the line of Abraham, that is Jesus. To provide the land of Canaan as a place for Israel to settle. And that all of the nations of the earth would be blessed because of Jesus. So his covenant is an outreaching of grace that would hold and keep Abraham safe even while the world around him is perishing in God's judgment. His covenant is the way that he graciously protects and ministers to the line of Abraham until he has fulfilled the promise of his covenant. All the things that God has promised, he will perform. And they will happen, and sometimes it's through what appear to be tedious, long ages of time. It is in the recollection, though, of God's unchangeableness in his past dealings with Israel that are the guarantee of the Lord's unfailing commitment to us who are faithful as well. So the psalmist describes Jehovah's care for the patriarchs during their travel in Canaan and Egypt, beginning in verse 12. What's important to see here is that Psalm 
In Psalm 105, the author chooses to highlight several, several elaborate details from those 430 years to show us the intimate way that God has been protecting and providing for Israel that entire time. Even from the first, when it was only three families, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that were representing all of the future tribes of his people, when these patriarchs were still too few to number, the psalmist said, he was guiding and protecting them. The psalmist says in Psalm 105 that they were wandering from one nation to another and from one kingdom to another people because God had called for a famine on the land and they were looking to avoid the famine. During that time of wandering, when they were interacting with pagan countries, the psalmist records that God allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my appointed one, anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. And so if we go back into Genesis 20, we see God testing and revealing himself for the first time to a pagan king, Abimelech, the king of Gerar. And Abraham tells Abimelech that Sarah, who is very beautiful, is his sister, which is a half-truth. And Abimelech, as king, decided to take Sarah as one of his concubines. And Moses records there that God came to Abimelech in a dream. And he said, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. And in that passage, Moses recorded, Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Adonai, or Master, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister, and she herself said, He is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. That's quite a challenging statement, isn't it? How does that sentence sit within your God-enhanced worldview? I did not let you touch her. So even amidst the deceitful half-truths Abraham concocted to prevent himself from being killed by a pagan king, God protects his promise to Abraham so that no pagan king could step in and ruin God's plan to provide a seed through Abraham, even though he came to him in a dream, and it was recorded that he was speaking to the Lord in his dream. And then the text goes on to say, when he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread. Think about that. The psalmist records that God summoned a famine. He called for a famine. As if the famine were some person or some animated body that could obey him. And it did because all things in our God-entranced worldview 
recorded in the scriptures, happened by the will and the commandment of God, as the psalmist is describing to us. And it doesn't happen by chance, just as Jonathan Edwards had said. It's hard to miss the point here that God does whatever he sees fit to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. (laughs) Which clearly includes afflicting millions of people of what is essentially the main staple of their diet, bread, in order to accomplish the immediate object of his famine, bringing about the migration of the Hebrews into Egypt. What control is that? How can we fathom understanding that? And the psalmist just keeps drilling down in the psalm into the details of God's providence even further as he unfolds God's history with Israel. He then writes, He had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave, until what he, Joseph, had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. So see something here with me. We recognize that Joseph going down into Egypt was divinely foreordained for Israel's protection and preservation, even though the action that initiated sending Joseph there came through the envy and the jealousy and the hatred and evil intentions of his brother, all of which God used to accomplish his own purposes. Even though the story proves that it was Joseph's innocence that nonetheless resulted in his imprisonment, the psalmist says that God had a purpose in imprisoning him. God used that imprisonment to test Joseph's faithfulness. Because it says, the psalmist says in the psalm, the word of the Lord tried him. And so we could ask, how does his imprisonment test him? Well, if you remember back in Genesis 37, now Joseph was explaining a dream that he had to his brothers. It's an amazing dream. He said, behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and my sheaf stood upright and arose. And your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And the text says that his brothers began to hate him. And then he dreamed another dream and said to his brothers and his fathers, Behold, I dreamt the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And his brothers were jealous of him. But the text says his father kept the saying in his mind. But look at the length of time it took for God to work this out in Joseph's life. Because of his dreams, he rightly expected honor and exaltation from God. And there he is in prison, even though he's innocent. And even while he's being tested by God to see how patiently he is able to wait on the Lord to fulfill his promise, the Lord is blessing him. You'll have to go back and read those blessings. I don't have time. But while he's in prison, it says the Lord is 
constantly blessing him, even though he's imprisoned. And I thought to myself, my goodness, do I consider that some of the circumstances that God has arranged for me are actually tests that God has brought about to see how patient I am with him? Are we so entitled in our God and trance worldview that we can't leave any room for God to take his time to bring about what he knows are the best things for us? Are we that entitled? How often do we wonder if indeed God has orchestrated delays in our plans to see how faithful we are in looking with wonder and delight at what he is accomplishing in our circumstances? I think the point of the story in Joseph is the promises brought about by the providence of God are indeed mysterious and wonderful. But folks, aren't the means by which he does it equally wonderful? Isn't that the challenge for us during our times of trial? To be attentive and patient with his providence, waiting on him? Well, then the psalmist drills down farther to describe how, jo how Jehovah protected his people during their Egyptian oppression. There's an important thing to remember here. At the outset of sending Moses and Aaron to speak to Pharaoh, God said, I just want to let you know something. The plagues aren't going to do any good. Because along with the plagues, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. But when the challenge of killing the firstborn comes, that'll be it. That's what it will take for him to relent. And so we might struggle with this question, why the long series of disasters then for Egypt, if you know in fact that they won't have the effect you're seeking? Why do it that way? And here's the right response for all those who are not believers and don't have a God-enhanced worldview. We see that even in the delivery of the plagues, there's the evidence of God's gracious character toward Pharaoh in that God ever mingles patience and restraint with the judgment. Right before Moses issues what God had stated in the seventh plague, of hail, Moses says to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself, or in the Hebrew, to your heart, and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. And then he says, for by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. And yet you are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. How stubborn is that will? Then he says, but for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. 
which the psalmist is reminding us to do. But remember, folks, glorying in God's holy name means glorying in his judgments, too. And when the judgment comes, it will have been already well established that beyond doubt, there are a people who are completely set in opposition to God and a God-entranced worldview and continue to be unwilling to believe him and take him at his word, even in the light of such extraordinary evidence that the psalmist is presenting to us. We see here God's grace, because even in pending judgment, Pharaoh had multiple opportunities to see that it was in his best interest to acknowledge who God is in reality. And then the psalmist continues, and he said, Then Israel came to Egypt, and the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily or deceitfully with his servants. So think about this. The root of the persecution of the people of Israel by the Egyptians happens because of God's great blessing upon the nation of Israel. God so ordered the events that the Egyptians became the enemies of his people because of their jealousy and suspicion and hatred for Israel. And that came about because of the Lord's blessing. Then the psalmist lists the wonders and the miracles and the judgments which become the reason for his commanding us at the beginning of the psalm to rejoice in God's care for Israel, which we'll consider at the end of the sermon. You'll notice that there are two plagues that aren't mentioned in Psalm 105, the fifth plague on the livestock and the sixth plague of painful sores and that the plagues aren't listed in the same order that they are recorded in the book of Exodus. And so the psalmist records the ninth plague first, darkness, maybe because it's the darkness of the heart that is driving the heart of Pharaoh to have a complete rejection of who God really is. In Exodus, Moses said that the darkness God sent was so dark you could feel it. I'm not really sure how dark that is. I'm guessing it's the darkest you could ever imagine. No one could see anyone, it says. They couldn't leave their residences for three days. And it just so happens that while G Egypt was in complete darkness, all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. It goes on to say in the psalm, He spoke and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. The houses of the Egyptians were filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day God set apart the land of Goshen where Israel dwelt, where his people were, so that no swarms of flies were there, that they might know he is the Lord in the midst of the earth. That's pretty detailed providence. And then it goes on to say in the psalm, he spoke and the locusts 
came, young locusts without number. This is my favorite example of God's power in all of the Old Testament. You remember that Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and they said the same thing. If you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country and they shall cover the face of the earth so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Wow. And so Moses stretched out his staff of the land of Egypt. The locusts came up and over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. It says, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, it says in Exodus. Neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Just because Pharaoh wouldn't let the people go, all the people suffered in that affliction. Then Pharaoh, of course, hastily calls for Moses and Aaron, and he says, Aaron, and he says, oh, forgive my sin, please. Only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh, and he pleaded with the Lord. And then, of course, the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind. The east wind brought them in, now a west wind. Drove them into the Red Sea, it says. And then just to challenge your God-entranced worldview... Moses wrote, not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. We were talking with some friends on the phone the other day, and we were talking about, well, I think he meant live ones. Not a single locust was left. How does that affect your God-entranced worldview? That's simply not believable unless you believe in the reality of a God-entranced worldview. It's undoubtedly statements like that, not a single locust remained, that made Mark Twain say this, it's not the things in the Bible that I don't understand that trouble me. It's the things in the Bible that I do understand that trouble me. That's about as plain as it can be. Not a single locust remained out of the billions that he brought in. And it's because of historical facts like that that men like Mark Twain are struck silent. And we're commanded, us who believe, to sing praises to God and remember his wonders and his miracles and his judgments. And then the Lord issued the final blow. He struck down all the firstborn in their land, the firstfruits of all their strength. And what do other Psalms say in regard to that statement that he struck down the firstborn? Well, they reassure us that our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases, and whatever the Lord pleases, 
he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all of his servants. And finally, the psalmist recalls the history of Jehovah's goodness in delivering Israel from Egypt, his provision in the wilderness, and safely leads Israel into the promised land. And listen to all the ways that the Lord God continued to provide for Israel all the way until they reached the promised land. The psalmist writes, Then he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. They asked, and he brought quail, and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. Other psalms call that angel's food. For he remembered his holy promise, and Abraham his servant. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing, and he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Now remember something about the covenant here that's really important. God isn't motivated to keep his covenant with Israel because Israel did everything right in keeping his statutes and his promises. In fact, far from it. What we see in a close observance of the historical record of those 430 years is Israel's repeated failures. Grumbling, unfaithfulness, and unworthiness before God. Moses rehearses Israel's rebellion to them way back in Deuteronomy chapter 9. And he says, it's not because of your righteousness or uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you. And that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Therefore, understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff necked people. Let me give you the 2023 definition of stiff necked. You are a difficult, stubborn, shameless people. You're like the rebellious oxen who need to be placed under a yoke. You are virtually non-responsive to my gracious, loving kindness for you. But that didn't keep him from maintaining his promise. Again, remember that God had pledged himself to Abraham that he would bring his posterity into the full possession of the promised land. And that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10 that for their iniquities he caused all who came out of Egypt to die in the wilderness except Joshua and Caleb. He brought their children into that good land and gave it to them for their inheritance. 
And Joshua understood perfectly that God had fulfilled his word to them in every respect. And that after many years, he appealed to the whole nation, saying not one thing had failed of all the good things which the Lord their God had spoken concerning them. All that was promised had come to pass for them, and not one word of them has failed, Joshua said. And so if the people were thinking and had arisen in their hearts, is God's mercy gone forever then because so many have died? Will his promise fail forever? And the answer in scriptures is no, because it's impossible for God to lie. His promises in Christ are all yes and amen, and his mercy endures forever, it says in Psalm 137. The end of all God's dealings with the Israelites was so they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. His design was that Israel should be a holy nation, loving God from their heart and representing him in the world and claiming the world for him as his own. Even we who are God's faithful children today, we need to re be reminded over and over again, even this morning, that we have great reason to celebrate our God and put all of our faith in him to fulfill his covenant. Because God has laid out for us in this historical narrative of Psalm 105 stunning reasons for us to sing his praises. And here in Psalm 105, after the psalmist had considered the extent of Jehovah's intimate care for Israel for a period of over 430 years, he began the psalm by giving us the reasons why we should praise him and the things that constitute what that praise looks like. So let's consider the Ten Commands that the psalmist mentions at the beginning of Psalm 105 to summon his people to praise Jehovah after we've seen the reasons in history that he laid out for us to trust and praise him. And he said, oh, give thanks to the Lord. Literally, hurl, throw out thanks to the Lord with extended hands. Just lavish him with thanks. He said, call upon his name, another command. Call upon him by celebrating his wonderful attributes and his character. Bear witness to God's character that he has revealed in history and the way he cares for and has protected Israel all these years. Then he says, make known his deeds among the peoples. Another command. Cause others to know him by explaining that what he does is motivated by his promise to love those people of faith forever. Show the people of this world that you have observed what Jehovah is like and there's no being anywhere like him. The psalmist is saying that now that you've acquired an understanding of who God is that I've just shown you, through seeing and through observing how he acts and cares for his people, 
with all of your senses, make known his greatness. Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. Sing songs to him. If you have been redeemed, then sing it out. If the blinding scales that had prevented you from trusting in a God-entranced worldview have been removed and you've been awakened to fully knowing the reality of who God is, then you are commanded to sing it out. He says, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Every true believer continues to seek the Lord. So be boastful about his holiness. Be sincerely and deeply thankful to him for it. I'm speaking to myself as much when I say this, but you know what? Stop being shy about it. Act upon yourself to make your only boast a confidence in who God has revealed himself to be. Make a show of that boast. Be overly ambitious about ascribing glory to him. Seek the Lord in his strength, he commands. Seek his presence continually. If your worldview is fully God-entranced, search him out for his guidance. Search him out for his counsel and his wisdom. Investigate the direction he seeks for your life. And when you find it, submit fully to it. Continue to seek him because Psalm 3411 says, those who seek him shall not lack any good thing. And finally, the psalmist commands us to remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments that he uttered, everything that he did to demonstrate his power and patience with Pharaoh, which the psalmist recorded for us to help you remember and rehearse and recite his miracles, wonders, and judgments that he performed in the keeping of his promise to Abraham way back in Genesis. And then he ends by saying, oh, offspring of Abraham, his servant. And I'm saying, yes, you in the sound booth, you on the worship team, every one of you here in the congregation, all of you who are children of Abraham, children of Jacob, his chosen ones, remember these things. Remember, too, that God is motivated to do all of the wonderful things that he has done because of his loving kindness. All throughout the Psalms, we are always brought back to the truth of his loving kindness towards us. I love how Psalm 107 ends. It really wraps this whole idea up. He says, the godly will see these things, the, the history of God's protection and care for Israel and be glad while the wicked are struck silent. Those who are wise will take all these things to heart. They will see in our history the faithful love of Jehovah. The godly, the conscientious, the upright in heart, 
the wise who have a God-entranced worldview, true believers who continue to seek the Lord and his strength will see the things that the Lord has done and be glad in them because they will see that behind all of it is the Lord's loving kindness for us. Let me pray for us. Father, it's with great wonder that we have rehearsed your history with Israel and your promise to Abraham. And Father, we ask that you uh, help us to be encouraged to trust in a God-enhanced worldview this morning, even as we rehearse this history and see your hand behind all things in your care for us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.